Welcome to Reformation Roundtable, episode number 20. My name is Joe Stout, and I'm so glad that you have decided to join us. This week, we completed our current survey of Reformed theology as it relates specifically to eschatology. Eschatology is the study of last things. And during this last week, we explored two major topics within this field, um, both of which come with much debate, lots of debate, lots of variation as it relates to biblical interpretation. Now, we all come with the foundation that the Bible has to interpret, Bible has to inform us, we don't get to pull from other sources, we have to pull from the Bible, but there's a variety of biblical interpretations on eschatological topics. And so the two topics we discuss today are the rapture and the millennium, a couple of big topics. Both are difficult to understand, and therefore there's a lot of diversity of thought, uh, kind of diversity of thought in where Christians are as regards the theological timeline. Of course, with eschatology, the study of last things, we are always trying to figure out where we are. So all Christians believe in a coming rapture. That's why it's been a part of our creed ever since the second century. You know, you remember the, the creed, the Apostles' Creed, certainly. We believe in Jesus Christ, who will come again to judge the quick or the living and the dead. So what does the rapture signify? We're going to talk about that today. Uh, is the rapture the coming of Christ, which is preceded? Or like, is it because the wickedness of man is so great that he must whisk us away to safety? Uh, and so then, therefore, we're raptured from earth into heaven. That's certainly the left behind uh, thought behind the rapture. Or is it maybe the coming of Christ, which is preceded by his church victoriously overrunning the world with the gospel? And so therefore, Christ returns as the victorious king. And we, the church, meet him in the air, not to leave, but to welcome him as he unites heaven and earth. Obviously, both ideas are wildly different, and they're really quite incompatible, but they're based on the same idea of the return of Christ or the rapture of Christ. And so we seek unity on this doctrine. We want there to be unity on this doctrine. Uh, and then we're also going to talk about the millennium. It's going to be a long episode today, but we're talking about the millennium or the 1,000-year reign of Christ. Once again, lots of theological variety in this conviction. Some believe the millennium is still to come. We're pre-millennial. It hasn't come yet. They see Satan currently in charge. He's calling the shots, and the church is largely surrounded by her enemies. Um, others believe we're already in the millennium. We're post-millennial, and that Christ is reigning in both heaven and on earth. Some even believe, uh, they're called amillennial, they even believe that the millennium only exists in heaven with Christ, and not it's not an earthly reality. Again, all of those things have their roots in biblical doctrine. Not all can be true, but they, can, but they are all held with biblical conviction. And so we strive for biblically-based unity on this doctrine as well. And the reason why we've spent so many lectures exploring the topic of eschatology. The reason why we're really just pounding this home, and this really is going to be our last episode for now on eschatology, but we're seeking to plant a Reformed church in the Twin City area of Centralia and Chehalis here in Lewis County in Washington State. 
And we want to have unity as believers, specifically, in this case, as it relates to the end of all things. And we certainly don't need to, nor should we expect, to all hold the exact same views to have unity. We don't need to all hold the same views to have unity, but some views are more compatible with one another than others are. And so we're holding these roundtable discussions with the hopes of planting a distinctly and unashamedly reformed church, a church that is unafraid to embrace the big idea, the big idea that God is truly sovereign, the idea that God is in charge of everything and pushing that to all the corners. We want to plant one of those churches. See, we believe that God is glorified when we understand, biblically understand his majesty, his dominion, and his sovereignty. And it's our conviction that Reformed theology brings us closest to this um, biblically and is the most biblically faithful way of understanding God. That's our biblical conviction. We all have convictions. That's ours. But in our area, in our parish, there is no Reformed church. So Reformation Roundtable, we're seeking to prepare the soil of Lewis County so that God, in his good pleasure, might bring to us the glories of the Reformation and Reformed theology can have a place um, in bringing about God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. So today we're going to listen to two lectures by R.C. Sproul. The first one's going to be on the rapture, and then there's going to be a short, maybe 15 minute or so discussion on that particular topic. Then we're going to watch, then we're going to listen to the next topic or the next lecture on the millennium. And then there's going to be a longer discussion on the millennium with some additional uh, discussions on the rapture as well. If you'd like to join us in what we're doing, we would love to have you be a part of this. We have a website. It's called lewiscounty.church. There's a contact form on there. All of the previous episodes of Reformation Roundtable are available there. We're going to start having additional content available there as well. But for right now, we have just have the, the Reformation Roundtable episodes there. We'd love to have you be a part of it. Uh, if you go to lewiscounty.church, there's a contact form. Uh, fill it out, and, and, and it'll, it'll, it should come straight to my email, and uh, we would love to have you be a part of what we're doing. We want to see this happen, and we know that with God, all things are possible. So enough of my talk. This is a long enough episode as it is. Enjoy the lectures, and may you be blessed by them. Through this series of lectures on the end times, we've been looking at those New Testament prophecies that in one sense or another perhaps were fulfilled within the first century time limits, particularly in the, and around the destruction of Jerusalem and of the temple. And those who believe that these prophecies of the Olivet Discourse were fulfilled in the first century are usually described as being preterists or uh, adopting the theory that is called preterism, meaning that these future prophecies have already been fulfilled in the past. But we also have to be careful to distinguish between two various and different forms of preterism. There's that group which call themselves full preterists, and those that would call themselves partial preterists. Now, what's the difference between full preterism and partial preterism? 
while full preterism, as the name suggests, believes that all of the specific future events that are prophesied in the New Testament regarding the end times have ta already taken place in the first century. So that would include not only the destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem and the return of Jesus, but also the great resurrection, the rapture, and all other matters that pertain to future prophecy. Partial preterism, however, differs from full preterism in this respect, that the partial preterists believe that though the return of Jesus in 70 AD was a return of Christ in terms of a return in judgment over Israel, it was not the uh, parousia or the final coming of Jesus at the end of history. The partial preterists would say that Jesus came in 70 AD at the end of an age, namely the Jewish age, but not at the end of all history. That the destruction of Jerusalem and the visitation of God's wrath upon his people there was a significant day of the Lord, but not the final and consummate day of the Lord, which remains yet to occur in the future. But most significantly is the difference on understanding the future resurrection of the saints and the rapture and last judgments that are predicted in the New Testament. Now, let's look first today at the difference with respect to the resurrection. When we turn to 1 Corinthians 15, where we have Paul's most lengthy and complex teaching regarding the resurrection of the bodies of the saints who will participate in the glorified body of Christ uh, in line with his resurrection, Paul concludes that study in 1 Corinthians 15 with this teaching beginning at verse 50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality, so that when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O hell, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now prior to this section of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about our being raised with glorified bodies after the similitude of the resurrection body with which Christ uh, rose from the dead. Now, up to this point, in our discussions about the future prophecy, 
the most central controlling fact factor in our consideration has been the time frame references that Jesus gives or the author of uh, the book of Revelation gives with respect to the time in which we can expect the fulfillment of these prophecies. Now, we understand that in the early church, one of the very first Christian creeds that was formulated is that creed called the Apostles' Creed. And in the Apostles' Creed, there is a phrase in the original Latin that reads, Resurrectionis Carnis, in which we affirm as Christians our faith in the resurrection of the body. We say, I believe in the resurrection of the body. That profession of faith that comes from the early church was not simply a profession of faith in Christ's resurrected body, but rather in our resurrected bodies. As Christ is promised to be the first fruits of those who will be raised from the dead, so we are told in the New Testament that in the resurrection we will have glorified bodies, that we will not be disembodied spirits wandering through eternity in that state. But there will come a time when we, our souls will be reunited with our bodies, our bodies will be raised, and the new bodies that we will enjoy will be incorruptible and immortal, so to speak. And so that's always been a major hope of the Christian community, that we look forward to that day where we will participate in the resurrection of the body. Now, full preterists argue that that prophecy about the future has already been fulfilled, which is a startling and astonishing conclusion. Well, let's argue, or well, let's see first why they argue for its uh, past fulfillment, and then we'll look at how they present that argument. If you notice, when I was reading from 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says uh, these things, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, etc. And then he goes on and said, We shall be changed. Now we notice that in this text, unlike the Olivet Discourse, there are no specific, explicit time frame references. Paul doesn't say, this is going to happen before this generation passes away. Nor does he say these things must take place shortly or that they are near at hand. So why then would somebody find in here a future prophecy that one would expect to take place in the near future? Well, those who hold to full preterism seize upon the use of the word we in this text. Three times in the passage that I just read, Paul uses this term we. He says, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed, and we shall be changed into this incorruptible situation. Now, uh, Elsewhere, with respect to the uh, rapture, Paul speaks in similar terms, and this is linked to the rapture text, where Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, 
but those of us who are alive at his coming. That that indicates that the us and the we would include the apostle Paul. So that Paul seems to be saying that these things are going to happen while he is still alive, uh, since he is including himself in the group that is designated by the word we or the word us. Now notice that this is not a statement whereby Paul says, I will be alive explicitly and concretely. But rather, he just says in passing, those of us who are alive at that time, and, and here in 1 Corinthians, we shall be changed, and so on, does not necessarily mean that the apostle expected that he would be alive when these prophecies would be fulfilled. Now, the advocates of full preterism argue that the we implies that Paul expected these things to take place during his lifetime. And I have to say at this point that the preterists are not the only people who assume that Paul is indicating his own personal expectation of being included in those who were still living when these prophecies would be fulfilled. Because this is a point that the higher critics of the New Testament have also seized upon, arguing that Paul certainly expected the final consummation of the kingdom in his lifetime, including the great resurrection and the rapture. And they argue on the same basis that the preterists do from inferences drawn from the inclusive language that the apostle uses when he says we, or those of us who are still alive. But those words, again, do not necessarily require that we assume that Paul was trying to communicate to his people that he personally would be alive. But he was speaking to the Christian community, not only to his contemporaries, but to the whole body of Christ from that day forward. And certainly, uh, Paul would be included in the resurrection whenever it would take place, whether it was in the first century or in the third millennium. Who knows? He would still be included in the we because all of the believers will participate in the resurrection and all will participate in the rapture. And when he said, and of course in the rapture thing, when he says those of us who are alive, again, does not require that it includes that he be living on the earth at that time. Now, what I'm saying again is that, that those inferences drawn from the preterists, the full preterists, are possible inferences from the text, but not necessary inferences from the text. And so we look at this in terms of how they see the fulfillment of these things in the first century. In order to take the position that both the resurrection and the rapture took place in the first century, one has to spiritualize the texts in terms of the descriptive ideas and concepts that are used about this resurrection. And if there's any place where it's a, a serious problem to begin spiritualizing something, it's when that which you're spiritualizing is discussing 
something that is supposedly physical and bodily. It's very difficult to spiritualize the bodily resurrection of the saints without at the same time actually denying the bodily resurrection of the saints. Because if it's only a spiritual resurrection, then manifestly it's not a physical resurrection. But uh, advocates of full preterism, such as Stuart Russell and Max King, do precisely this. They say that the resurrection of which Paul speaks did take place in 70 A.D., but it was a spiritual resurrection of those who have died. They were spiritually raised and are now in heaven. And they are not to be understood in physical categories. Not without reason, this position has been charged with being a form of Gnosticism because as the Gnostics denied the full reality of the physical resurrection of Jesus and even of his physical incarnation, this would seem to be denying a real physical resurrection of the saints since it, in order to have taken place in the first century without anybody's knowing it, and nobody in the early church recording the resurrection of those who had died before them, that this would uh, force them to this idea of a spiritual resurrection. Now, the same type of thing happens with respect to the treatment of the rapture, which Paul uh, describes in his correspondence to the Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians... In chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, we read the following account of the rapture, which has gained so much attention in Christian eschatology that uh, it warrants that we read the, the text. In verse 13, we read these words in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. Now here the apostle is addressing a concern that was a vital concern of early Christians. The early Christian community had the hope for the future resurrection and for the return of Christ in clouds of glory, and yet before these things took place, many of the Christians of the early community died. And so the obvious question that their relatives were asking was this, does this mean 
that our relatives and our friends who have passed on will miss these great eschatological events that have been promised to us. And Paul is answering the Christian community by saying, by no means. In fact, not only will those who have died not miss the return of Christ at the end of time and the great resurrection, but they will be front row seats participants. They will be at the head of the line because the apostle says the dead in Christ will rise first and they will be taken up into the air and we who are alive at his coming will also be taken up to join the Lord or to meet the Lord is the language the apostle Paul says in the air as he descends with the trumpet sound and that sort of thing. Now the full preterist have to speak again of a secret rapture, a rapture that was spiritual, that was silent, and that was invisible. To argue that the rapture has, always ta has already taken place means it occurred, nobody heard it, nobody saw it, and uh, no one was aware of it. And so if it were simply spiritual and invisible and silent, we wonder how we can do justice to the language of this text and others. Well, again, Russell and others fall back on the symbolism that is frequently used in prophetic prophecies that say you don't have to make a literal interpretation of these things. But uh, to me, it involves a serious bending of the words of this text to talk about uh, a secret which, according to the language of the apostle, will be the worst kept secret in history, and hardly a silent event, as all heaven will break loose. Now, on the other hand, there's all kinds of debate about what actually is going to take place in the rapture, and again, when the rapture will take place. Those who hold a completely future interpretation of New Testament eschatology, particularly in dispensational premillennialism, expect the rapture to take place before the tribulation. And you'll hear people talk about the pre-trib rapture. The idea here is that there's going to be a great tribulation at the end of history, but prior to that tribulation, the church will be caught up to meet Jesus, and Jesus will sort of come halfway back to the earth. He'll take up his saints out of the earth to meet him in the air, and then he will stay with his saints aloft, either for the whole seven years of the tribulation or however the schema is worked out, and then at the final time, he will come back again for his final manifestation, returning with the saints that he had taken up out of the world before the tribulation. So this scheme has two returns of Jesus at the end of the times. One, the secret return first just for his saints who are taken up out of the world, who meet him, and then his final return after the tribulation and so on. I think this fundamentally misunderstands the imagery that is used here by the apostle with respect to the rapture and its meaning. 
Paul does not say that the Christians will be caught up in the air and then stay up in the air with Jesus. The imagery here is of meeting Christ as he is returning in glory, so that the Christians are participating in his victorious return to this world. It's not that he'll come so far, catch up the church, and then stay there or go back to heaven until a later time. But the whole point of the imagery here echoes and reflects something that was commonplace in the contemporary world in which Paul wrote, namely the pattern and practice of the triumphal return to Rome of the Roman armies. Whenever the Roman armies would come back from a campaign, before they would enter the city of Rome, they would camp outside the city, about a mile outside the city. And there would be all of the soldiers plus all of the captives that they had brought home from the campaign. And then they would send a messenger into the Senate to announce their arrival. Remember, they carried the banners of SPQR, the Senate and the people of Rome. And that would give the time for the city planners to erect an arch of triumph and to decorate the city, much as we would for a ticker tape parade for conquering heroes. They would spray garlands with a sweet aroma throughout the city to cover up the smell of slaves and their odor and so on. And then at a prearranged time, a signal would be made whereby the trumpets would be blown. And that was the signal for the armies of Rome to march in triumph into the city. But before they began their march, at the single of the trumpet, everyone who was an actual citizen of Rome was invited to come outside the city to join the parade to march back in through the arch of triumph with the victorious army so that they participated in the victory and participated in the triumph. And I think if you see throughout Paul's writings, he frequently borrows the imagery of the Romans from this. And what I hear Paul saying is that when Jesus comes, he's going to come back to this earth with his whole church. The church will be caught up to meet him as he descends, and they will, he will continue to descend along with his whole entourage of believers. Now, when this will occur uh, depends on what your views of the millennium may be and so on, and we'll look at those things in our next and final session. I feel like that, that position is kind of an easy one to, I don't know. Hmm. I feel like that position is kind of an easier one to dismiss. You talking about full preterism? For full pre, yeah, yeah. I don't feel like that one's really all that hard. You don't have to dig very far because right? I'm not some major like theologian, but like that immediately popped in my head. Hmm. I'm like, okay, so show me examples in Scripture that are contrary to that, where it's a spirit, it's a spiritual raising that we can use that as a point of reference, and then maybe I'll. I was kind of wondering because I'd never really heard it defended, and when I. Not, not that a full preterist would maybe defend it the way R.C. did, but if it's mainly centered around 1 Corinthians 15 and the Paul using the we and those of us language, that seems pretty weak. Um, unless you had, you had kind of pretty liberal convictions about the actual things that happen in Scripture, and you were kind of looking for a way of making the Bible more acceptable to some of those liberal sensibilities, spiritually liberal, not politically liberal, of course, the idea that 
you know, when you read about a miracle, it's really just a story to illustrate a point. Whereas, like you were saying, Andrew, Matthew 27, 52, the tombs were opened, many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. <laughs> you, you don't spiritualize that away. Yeah, like, yeah. And, and if that happened after Christ's resurrection, and they're saying that that then happened again secretly in 70 AD, that's, I mean, that's just kind of laughable. Okay. Yeah. So I agree. It's not a hard, hard one to defend. Or I'd say it's a hard one to defend. It'd be very yeah. difficult to defend. Yeah. It, it's untenable for an evangelical to believe that. Mm -hmm. You know, it denies bodily resurrection, denies, yeah. you know, I mean, all kinds of stuff. So. Yeah. Right. It, you know, when he uses the pronoun we, I'm not sure what other one you'd use in there. Because if you use they, mm -hmm. then you're almost making a prediction you won't be around. Right. So, or you wouldn't be part of it. Right. <laughs> you, you won't experience it even if you die. <laughs> yeah, so it seems kind of... And then when you go to um, 1 Thessalonians 5, 10, if I can find that, feeling like Andrew here. Um, but but he, he says, um, I'll go to 9, he says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul talking again, verse 10 says, Who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. And so I think Paul's there is just clearly saying, Hey, I don't know where I'm going to be exactly, mm -hmm. but I do know that I'm going to be part of it somehow. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's really good. I, I wonder if him bringing up the full preterism and the secret return and the secret resurrection was to, um, was, that's what was, was to um, highlight the fact that that's kind of the majority position when it, when it regards the rapture as being the first rapture, being a secret thing, like a secret return where we all, Christians just kind of disappear. And nobody knows what happened. You know, it's like the planes just crash and, uh, and people are, their clothes are just li left lying around, the whole left behind, the whole left behind idea. And that is, I, I don't want to say equally preposterous because it's not. It's, you could much, you can much easier find that theology in scripture than you can find the full preterist position. But it does seem like, wait, so there's two returns of Christ. There's a secret return that no one knows about except for his church. And then there's the actual triumphant return. That makes less, I mean, I think that's, that's a hard, harder so one. So you're saying that he might have just done this whole thing as a setup to create a framework to, like, stabilize his position more effectively? <laughs> no, I don't think yeah. <laughs> Like, here, let me just show you this, and this is completely untenable. And now I'm going to show you this because I think that this is equally so, but I don't, I'm not going to say that explicitly. Right. I'm just going to take this, this whole session here to... It, it could have <laughs> been a, a little bit to say, like, hey, Christians don't believe, you know, true Christians don't believe this. Mm -hmm. But true Christians do believe this. And this is where they're similar, and this is why I think mm -hmm. that you shouldn't believe this. I think he's worked hard to be consistent oh, throughout yeah. the series. Yeah. Yeah, I think so, too. Well, and I think most of, what he's, most of what he has presented, I think, has been more minority positions anyway. So that, yeah. the full preterist is definitely, I would say, a minority position. Right. Like, 
I literally have never heard. Minorities, they come. Yeah, I've never, I've never heard that. I, I actually kind of wonder if, um, if it's the type of position where people who hold that would hold to like a spiritual resurrection of Jesus. You know, like Jesus didn't literally come back from the dead, but he's spiritually mm-hmm. in heaven with God reigning there, and which is, of course, just pure heresy. Full preterist has always been dismissed as heresy. We were actually talking in the in the truck over here while we were while we were driving here about you know what things constitute heresy. Full preterism absolutely does because you deny so much of the like like you said, Les. It's an untenable position for for evangelical Christians, for really any Christians, because you are saying that the resurrection not only has already occurred, but no one even noticed it. <coughs> Interesting. But they would still say that there's another one coming, though, that we will know. So they just say it's nope. done. Done. And so we're living in the tribulation right now? You're or? living your best life now. You've missed it. Yeah, you've missed You're it. here. <laughs> it's over. So Christ has taken everyone else somewhere else, and they're living in some other planet or something, or some or heaven without us? No, when you die, I think, I think that when you die, you... Oh, you'd still go you, there. You still, that, that happens to you, too. But then they'd have some explaining to do with the, you know, at the end of Revelation where it says he's going to create a new heaven, a new, I guess the new earth is somewhere else. Right. It's all spiritual. It's already there. It's gone. Yeah. Yeah. We missed the trumpet. <laughs> right. It's funny because I've always known what a partial preterist is. Um, and I always thought, because I've never heard anyone, you know, push the, the full preterist, because I, I, I've always thought, why did they call the partial preterist? Obviously, because we don't, but it seemed like usually when you have a partial, there is a full, but I've never heard anyone talk mm. about the full, and so this is, it was interesting to hear him. Mm. Right. The passage out of 1 Corinthians 15 is one of my favorite passages in Scripture, um, because uh, it's so easy for us as evangelicals to become Gnostic without knowing it, mm. and we think that our hope is in going to heaven. <clears throat> And there's certainly hope in going to heaven. There's, there's definitely hope. But our final hope is not living as, a, you know, living in paradise with Jesus. Our final hope is reigning with him in our glorious uh, resurrected body so that we can be like him. Because yeah. when we die, if I die tonight, I don't get to be like him until the resurrection. I get to be with him, and that's a wonderful thing. Right. But even that, there's still a greater hope beyond that. Absolutely. Uh, and I, I love that. I love focusing in on the fact that we'll resur- our bodies will be real. Our blood, you know, you think about Jesus' resurrected body. He was so physical, he could walk through walls. <laughs> he was so, but he still ate. He still proved his physicality multiple yeah. times. To come in, touch my side. And, yeah, intentionally. Watch me eat. Watch yeah. me. I'm not a ghost. You know, and, and yet we still harbor these kind of Gnostic tendencies, these kind yeah. of spiritual secret knowledge type things. You know, we don't, we don't think about that enough, I think, sometimes, generally. Generally mm-hmm. speaking about believers. You know, it's... St. Corinthians 4, Paul talks about a momentary light affliction, and mm-hmm. but he compares it to this weight of glory that mm-hmm. awaits awaits us. And yeah. you know, so he he's not dismissing trial and tribulation. He's not saying it doesn't matter or suck it up or anything. He's not saying that. He's just saying don't dwell on what you see. Mm-hmm. Don't yeah. you know? Think about what you don't see right now. But you know, in the order of salvation, as we talk about effectual calling, you know how it all lays out. Glorification mm. is, is the last thing, and that's you know I don't think about it enough. 
Yeah. But man, that'll that'll drive you. It will Amen. draw and drive and do everything for you. <clears throat> the question is just asked, what is Gnosticism? And Gnosticism, is, there was a group of actually Gnostics in the early church that were had a fairly big, strong, strong group. But basically, they they separate the flesh from the spiritual, and they say everything spiritual is good, everything flesh is evil, and and so. Um, that's kind of the basic idea of Gnosticism. So that's why he's mm-hmm. calling this Gnosticism because they're saying there's a spiritual resurrection, but not a. There's no physical involvement. So and, yeah, your material body is evil. Yeah. But yet, when God created things in the beginning of the garden, I mean, it's pretty easy to just go back and kind of refute it by looking right. at what God mm-hmm. said about who Adam and Eve are and your identity as an image bearer of God mm-hmm. was physical. So there's a there's a spiritual and physical component there, but there was a desire to separate those two things out completely. S- scripture is undeniably antithetical towards Gnosticism. It's the opposite of Gnosticism. Yeah. It's incredibly physical. Very physical. And, and that's a, the the whole New Age movement was really kind of Gnosticism reborn, sort of. Yeah, that it really is. It's all like going going into this kind of spiritual. And because if you if you take it all spiritual, it's a lot easier to kind of make up stuff. Sort of like, well, you know, this kind of happened, the spiritual thing. And I mean, I, it's a very, uh, it's something that's been revisited again and again and again. A lot of different groups have moved to that. Yeah. Well, a lot of the epistles were written specifically to combat Gnosticism. Yep. And correct me, Gnosis is the root for knowledge, right? Yeah. Yes. Knowledge well, and. So that was another big. That was another big kind of characteristic of the of the early Gnostics, and I think it's true of the repeat Gnostics is that they had a special knowledge that no one else did. Like you guys just don't get it. You gotta, you know, if you join the group, you can understand that there's there's this deeper yeah. understanding that we have this spiritual, you know. So. Again, absolutely contrary to right. what, yep. what we're told. I mean, what yep. we're given and revealed. Well, I think too. Oh, sorry. Yeah. No, 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 you're good, oh. Charles. What were you gonna? Gnosticism was true, and your your spiritual body was good, and your physical body was evil, and that would mean Jesus was evil mm-hmm. when he was on earth, yeah. and yet not evil at the same time, since he was fully spiritual. Yeah, so that's where the denial of being fully God and fully man mm-hmm. came in by the Gnostics. Yeah. Yeah. So they would actually, never they would acknowledge his deity, but they wouldn't acknowledge that he actually was here physically. Too, so that was part, which is kind of a denial of the whole thing. Yeah, the denial of the whole thing. Well, then the other aspect to it too is that it created a it created an avenue for justification of sin in the flesh, because then you could just simply say, because my flesh is completely irredeemable, I am it is permissible for me to do all of these evil things so long as I maintain a spiritual side. So you can I mean, you can even see that too in the way that things play out and. Uh, um, you know, postmodernism, where you see like the desire to separate sacred and secular. Mm-hmm. Those people will hammer that home that the idea that oh well, there are these sacred things that we do, but then there are also these secular things. And whereas God has made it pretty clear that all things belong to Him, mm-hmm. so that would include this, right? Mm-hmm. All this meaty yeah. stuff and everything else and. This and this yeah. table, everything belongs yes. to him. That, that, that too. <laughs> that, that's well, what, I've taken ownership over a couple of them. <laughs> that's what the heresy of docetism said, and I only know that because i got a list of stuff here. Um, oh. That 
Christ only seemed to be a man. He wasn't actually a man. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. You know, there's you guys are talking about heresy and what makes a heretic. That I mean, we're yeah. littered. You know, our history in the faith is littered with, with these things. Uh-huh. We, that's why you know, again, you. I, I just believe you got to have sound doctrine. I mean, Paul is just throughout the Bible is told or told. Must have sound doctrine. You got to you got to know the word, right. so that you see these counterfeit things. Yeah. You may not be able to call it docetism. You go, no, that's not right. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, yeah. there's no way that's right. Yeah, that, that is a heresy. Moving, kind of as we move into the the talk on the millennium, it's the that idea of hope being the central one of the central faith, hope, and love. You know. Eternity with Christ means there'll be no more faith, there'll be no more hope, but there'll still be love. So apart from Christ, while we work out his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, we have faith and hope that we hold on to. And one of the major hopes, that blessed hope that Paul talks about, is the idea that we'll be resurrected again. And I don't know that you can necessarily find this in churchyards in the Pacific Northwest, because we're not that old here, but old churchyards you would find they would always have their, the, the, the gravestones pointed east with the, a with the sinner uh, laid on his back with his feet pointed mm-hmm. east. And the idea was that when Christ did return, the resurrected body that was planted like a seed in the ground would once mm-hmm. again spring up and he'd be, he, he would rise up ready to meet the Lord. Now, of course, that's a symbolic hope that you go when you go into these graveyards and see like, these saints were buried in the hope of the what? Of the resurrection. Yes, they're with Jesus now, but that's not their final place. Their final place is resurrected with Christ in an incorruptible body, mm-hmm. a, a body that will never, never once again, never again mm-hmm. uh, see that corruption. Um, and I think that Christians um, oftentimes miss it, and we think more Gnostically about going to heaven and spiritually being with Jesus, which is a good thing, but it's not the final thing. <laughs> We now come to the end of our brief overview of matters relating to the end times, and it would certainly be uh, a lack if I left out at least a small or simple summary of the various eschatological positions that vie with each other for acceptance in our day that are usually articulated in terms of how one understands the New Testament teaching of the millennium. We'll look at the biblical text for that in a moment, but you hear the various uh, schools of thought described in a kind of theological shorthand where we say somebody is uh, premillenarian or they're pre-mill, somebody else is post-mill, somebody else is awe-mill, somebody else is dispensational, a particular type of pre-mill, and so on. And these different theological and eschatological positions are all defined in terms of how they understand the millennium. But these issues are not simply about the millennium. They uh, represent uh, a whole, complete, different view of eschatological matters uh, besides how one understands the millennial question. But let's look at the text that uh, has engendered so much discussion about uh, the millennium. We find it in the book of Revelation in the 20th chapter beginning at verse 1. 
We read, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So here's the first reference to the thousand-year period, and it has to do with the binding or chaining of Satan, where Satan is held in captivity, according to the imagery here of Revelation, for a period of a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal on him, so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. So you get the picture in the chronology so far. Satan is bound. He's held captive. He's in the bottomless pit for a thousand years. And at the end of that thousand years, he's going to be released for a little while. And then we read, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison, will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle whose number is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then I saw a great right throne, and so on, in the description of the judgment. So here we hear about an interim period of history of a thousand years, where Satan is bound and Christ is reigning together with his saints followed by the unloosing of Satan, who then, at that time, will wage war against Christ and against his saints. And, of course, the outcome of that war is not in doubt, as Christ will ultimately triumph, and the, together with his saints will reign forever. Now, how is this period of a thousand years, and this is the only place we find the, any specific reference to it in the Bible, but of course you only have to find it once to uh, take it seriously. How do the different schools of eschatology uh, look at this? Well, let's begin with the so-called amillennial position. The word amillennial literally means no millennium. Someone who is amoral is not moral, and the ah represents a negation. Uh, 
And that position takes the idea that the millennium that is described here is not a literal thousand-year period, but is speaking in symbolic language about the uh, history of the church. The amillennial position believes that the age of the church is the age of the kingdom of God, and that the kingdom of God began with the first appearance of Christ. And when he came, he fulfilled the nearby prophecies of John the Baptist who said the kingdom of God was at hand in terms of radical nearness. When Jesus appeared on the scene, he said the kingdom of God is in your midst. He said, if you see me casting out Satan by the finger of God, then you know that the kingdom of God has come upon you. And so, in, in the ascension of Christ, he ascends to the right hand of God. He goes to his coronation where he is crowned the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And so the amillennial position is based on the conviction that the kingdom of God is not something that is completely out there somewhere in the future, but that it has already begun. It has started. It still awaits its final consummation. But the prophecies in the Old Testament that refer to the future of Israel and Israel's full and final redemption refer, according to the all-mill position, to the church. The church is the kingdom of God. The church fulfills the prophecies of the Old Testament. Now, the church includes both Gentiles and Jews. The all-mill position would still leave room for a future dealing of God with ethnic Israel, with Jewish people, but not in a separate agenda, a separate program where God has one redemptive plan for the Jews and another redemptive plan for the Gentiles. But rather, all of the prophecy in the Bible refers to the church and the kingdom of Christ, that it will include both Jews and Gentiles. Now also, the Amil position believes that the Christian community, as it manifests the kingdom, will have an ongoing positive influence on culture that the impact of the church on the world will be to bring blessing and improvement to the human condition and to the human situation. Throughout history, there will be an ongoing positive influence of Christ and his church in the world. John Calvin, for example, taught that the supreme task of the church between its beginning and its consummation at the end of time is to bear witness to the invisible reign of Christ. He said that it is the task of the church to make the invisible kingdom visible. You recall that when Jesus left this planet, the very last question that was asked him by his disciples was the question, Lord, will you now restore the kingdom to Israel. And what did Jesus say? He didn't say, how many times do I have to tell you there's not going to be a kingdom for Israel? 
No. He said, look, those times are in my Father's hands. And then he goes on to say, but you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And what the all-mill position would be is that they believe that it is the church's task to be witnesses to the invisible kingdom that already exists. The Lord Jesus Christ reigns right now. He is the Lord of Lords. He is the King of Kings. And uh, we are in the kingdom age. But the kingdom has not been consummated. Also, the Amil looks for a future apostasy where towards the end of time the church will become corrupt. So corrupt that it will end in a radical state of apostasy uh, which has not been seen uh, in this degree even up to this point in church history. And this is one of the reasons why many people believe that we are entering the, the final hours of history because of the widespread apostasy of uh, the Christian church that began with the advent of 19th century liberalism with its agenda basically of unbelief. In any case, they would say that this apostasy will uh, result then in a period of great suffering for those who are uh, faithful to Christ, and this period of suffering will be called, is what they understand the tribulation to be, in which the Antichrist will become manifest at the end of time, and uh, the saints will have to endure great suffering during this period of the work of the Antichrist who will be persecuting the people of God and the church will not escape uh, this period of tribulation through some kind of pre-tribulation rapture. And then at the end of this period Christ will return and triumph over the forces of evil and finish his work of redemption which includes the renovation of all creation with the new heavens and the new earth. But all of this is taking place over an indefinite period of time that will not be a literal thousand years because the all-mill position is based upon the assumption that the millennium really began in the New Testament with the triumph of Christ in his cross and resurrection and in his ascension. And so the thousand-year reign is an indefinite period from the time Christ is inaugurated as king until whatever time in the future he comes back, whether it's 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, or 4,000 years, literally, that the millennium is simply a symbolic representation of this parenthesis or this interim period. On the other hand, you have the dispensational form of pre-mill eschatology, where the dispensational view is that we are right now not in the kingdom age, but we are in the church age. And the church age represents a parenthesis between the old covenant period and the coming of the kingdom. To the dispensationalists, the coming of the kingdom is completely future. This is one of the things that created so much controversy over understanding, for example, Jesus' teaching 
in the Sermon of, on the Mount. Some, uh, if not most, classical dispensationalists believe that the ethic taught by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount has no relevance to the contemporary church, but it is a kingdom ethic that will only be implemented at the end of the time after Christ comes back when he will establish his kingdom. Also, the, the, uh, the pre-mill position, as I indicated already, views two distinct programs in redemptive history, one for Israel and one for the church. So all the Old Testament prophecies and many of the New Testament prophecies that talk about, for example, the Antichrist appearing, the man of lawlessness appearing uh, in the temple, and so on. The dispensationalists look for a future of the people of Israel, after the church is out of the world, where the temple will be rebuilt, the sacrifices will be reinstituted, and God will, and Christ will come and convert the Jews to himself. But there will be a redemptive plan for the Jews that is distinct from the redemptive plan of the church, and the church is not the new Israel. The church is a different institution from uh, Israel. So many of the Old Testament prophecies that look toward the future redemption of Israel, according to dispensationalism, are not in any way fulfilled in the New Testament church, but they still await their final fulfillment uh, as God works with the Jews. And as I said, dispensationalism looks for this pre-tribulation rapture, and uh, at the end uh, there will be a, uh, a thousand-year reign at the time that Christ comes back, again followed by, after that thousand years, uh, the victory over Satan, but Satan will not have been bound until that thousand-year reign comes. Now, uh, the, uh, the post-millennial position, which differs from these others, believes that the church, again, is Israel. They share that idea with the all-mill position, but that the kingdom of God is a kingdom of spiritual redemption and is not a program of earthly or political uh, uh, transformation. However, the post-mill position of all of the positions is the one most optimistic with respect for the church's influence on society, that the influence of the church on society will be transforming and as the Great Commission succeeds, uh, there will be great blessing in the world as a result of the proclamation of the gospel and the impact of the church. And after a thousand years, a literal thousand years of this, Jesus will return at the end of the thousand-year period with the final judgment. So for most post-millennialists, the thousand-year reign of Christ has not yet begun, but it will be ushered in and be manifesting a major victory of the influence of Christianity on the world. And so that the power of the gospel and the power of the church will get greater and greater and greater rather than smaller than smaller than smaller. 
And so the, uh, some people in various types of post-mill position have almost looked for a kingdom of God on earth for uh, a, a subsequent uh, and substantive period of time in which these things uh, take place. Now, uh, with respect to historic premillennialism, and we've made a distinction between premillennialism and dispensationalist premillennialism, because within eschatological theories, this distinction exists. There is a classical doctrine of pre-mill that differs at certain points from dispensationalism. Dispensationalism, as a movement, began in the 19th century, though it claims to be simply recovering the true biblical eschatology and the eschatology of the early church. But throughout history, there have always been those who maintained that Christ would come back before the millennial and would establish a kingdom for a thousand years after which there would be uh, the great tribulation and the final battle. In this view, the historic view of, of pre-mill is that the New Testament era church is the initial phase of Christ's kingdom as had been prophesied by Old Testament prophecy. Second of all, that the New Testament church will win occasional victories in history, but ultimately will fail in her mission, lose influence, and become corrupted to the point of apostasy as worldwide wickedness and corruption increases at the end of the church age. Then the church will pass through a, world, a future worldwide unprecedented time of tribulation and travail. This, of course, is known as the period of the Great Tribulation, and that will punctuate the end of contemporary history as we know it. And then after the Tribulation, Christ will return to rapture His church, resurrect the departed saints, and conduct the judgment of the righteous all within the twinkling of an eye. And then Christ will descend to the earth with His glorified saints, fight the battle of Armageddon, bind Satan, establish a worldwide political kingdom which will be personally administered by Jesus for a thousand years. And his headquarters, of course, will be in Jerusalem. And then at the end of this millennial reign, Satan will be loose, and another massive rebellion against the kingdom and against Christ will occur. Then God will intervene in fiery judgment to rescue Christ and the saints, and then the final resurrection and final judgment will occur and the eternal order of history will be ushered in. And so these different views are, you know, shorthand described in terms of their relationship to this thousand-year period. Again, to recapitulate, the awe-mill position is that the millennium is not a literal thousand-year reign. The other three positions do have a literal thousand-year reign. There is the thousand-year reign of the, of the uh, historic premillennialism that takes place, uh, uh, as we just read, uh, at a future point in which Christ will reign for a thousand years on the earth. Satan will be bound, then he'll be released for a season, the battle of Armageddon takes place, and so on. 
The post-millenarian view sees a thousand-year period of great prosperity for the church that has still not yet come, and when it comes, Christ will reign through that thousand-year period of great benefit for the whole world, and then after that there will be this uh, tribulation and the Antichrist and all of these sort of things. And so I think you get some feel for this, and with where the preterists fall out, obviously, is that the full preterists don't believe in a millennium. I mean, it's already taken place. And the partial preterists uh, tend, but not all, tend to fall into the camp of the post-mill position that, or the all-mill position. But most of them are post-mill and still see future prophecies left to be fulfilled, but they have an optimistic view of the influence of the church in history. Now, the reason why there are these competing positions of all-mill, post-mill, dispensationalism, historic pre-mill, preterist, and all the rest is because it is so difficult to uh, know with precision and with certainty the exact references of future prophecies. And that's why uh, the greatest minds in the church continue to examine these prophecies. We don't have the benefit of hindsight, which is 2020, and we want to be always vigilant and always alert, watching uh, the course of history as we are taking seriously the future prophecies of sacred scripture. You guys all hear your own positions uh, represented? Um. Throughout the discussion, yes. <laughs> At first you're, I was you're, pre-mill, you're and then I was on mill <laughs> and by the end I didn't know. So you're schizophrenic. The thing that I struggle with, I think, is um, I struggle with the dispensationalism, or the dispensationalist position, because... You struggle with it as in it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to me because I feel like I feel like Jesus is a one size fits all solution to our problems. Like the redemption the redemption the arc of the redemption story of scripture is all about Christ. Right. So why why is there a requirement for the Jewish people to have some sort of special uh, additional redemption story that extends outside of the word of God? Like I, it's a hard, it's hard for me to it's hard for me to if you validate that then you validate I think you start validating other avenues to salvation. Yeah, do they think that Christ is going to do something else? Or I mean, do you guys have you heard what that 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 also I just I've never given it much credence just for that very reason. It doesn't I mean too different. It, it, it seems like sometimes the dispensational position can be characterized by um, those people, of, the people of God before Jesus came the first time. They see themselves in this great period of darkness, and but one day Jesus is going to come and he's going to be the light of the world, and he's going to bring the light, um, and then he'll really start, start his kingdom. Where I would say it makes more sense to see that happening when Jesus actually came the first time. Yeah. The prophecy was leading up to this, this root of Jesse who would come and bring about redemption for his people. And so the dispensationalist position, as R.C. seemed to say, looks at what the period we're in now is a parenthesis 
kind of like uh, an in-between thing while God is accomplishing his overarching goal, which involves the Jews, and the church is kind of like a secondary mission or something like that. It's, I'm, I'm sure no premillennial, dispensational premillennials would, would argue it that way, but it does seem very uh, parenthetical. It seems like, well, he's working on this right now, but ultimately he's looking to get the temple rebuilt and institute the sacrifice again so that all of these things can take place. The Antichrist can come, he can come, and the temple will be destroyed, and Jerusalem will be set, surrounded by armies, and all those things that I think R.C. has laid out as having already taken place, they're still waiting for those things to, mm-hmm. to come about. You know, the, the thing that kind of got me, there's a couple things. One, that dispensationalism is rel- it's, it's relatively new. I mean, King Darby, right, I think, in the mm-hmm. 19th century. So, I mean, there's a long time before this seemed to kind of bubble up to the surface. And, you know, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm a very simple person, I think. <laughs> to tell me Matthew 5, 6, and 7... Yeah, have no uh, application or whatever. He, I can't. I can't what, think that that's true. I, I can't either. Was, I just. Well, I just don't think that follow. was a proper representation of dispensationalists. He called them classic, classic pre, uh, dispensationalists. I don't know what that. Well, means. I don't know what it means either. I'm just saying that that not all of this. When you say yeah. right that the Sermon on the Mount would have no application, it's just like I'm looking at it right now. I'm going well. How would anybody think that this would not apply? Well, I would right. say that's the problem with what he, he's given us, kind of the, the. I mean, I, I think there's as many interpretations of the millennium and rapture as there are people groups in the world. I mean, he's given us the, the high, like there's this, 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 this. These are the five major. But I think there's so many groups and people that, Kind of fall in between there. They don't. They don't necessarily hold directly to the way he's described dispensationalism. Yeah. I think there's people that buy into dispensationalism, but don't buy into everything he said. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of play in there. And, and the problem with eschatology is, like you said, this is a new thing. The longer our history goes, and Christ doesn't return, I think the more different perspectives you're going to get on the end times. Because wouldn't it be the opposite? Wouldn't you get the less? Because the because the any time now, people eventually are going to be like, all right, I guess it's not any time now. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I just mean that because you're looking at um, history, and as we've said before, there's so many different possible antichrists, and so many different people you call this, and so many, you know, and so um, there's just more time to think about it. There's more time to kind of the problem with with interpreting the end times is. You, what we're doing now, we can't really use scripture completely to interpret it because we're trying to figure out when it's going to happen. And we're looking at, well, you know, you're really looking at what's happened so far. I mean, you kind of have to look at history to start to sort out the time frame stuff. And, and that's when you get into danger, when you're leaving scripture to interpret scripture in a sense. But we kind of have to in this situation because we're trying to figure out when is this going to happen. And what order is going to happen? In, you know, kind yeah. of. It either it either some of it has already happened, all of it has already happened, or right. none of it has happened. Right. So, so that's a, you're looking at what has happened and what you know. Right. It, what do you? A new temple with the sacrificial system instituted. I mean, um, I'm trying to think about what God's attitude about that was when when the Lord said to Telestai when He said it is finished. It's, mm-hmm. it's finished. So I, I'm, I, I don't know if I understand what the 
purpose of that is, I mean, maybe it's is it prophesied in Ezekiel or something, but I don't think that's the case. I, in other words, why would God why would God want to allow that system to be reinstituted when when the Lamb when the Lamb came, the perfect Lamb, and and we're His temple now. He he doesn't yeah. need an earthly temple. So I, I, that confuses me as well. I, I think I think it comes. Oh, I just say. I yeah I just can't buy that one. If I read Hebrews five, six, seven, and eight, I mean it's just talking about the the Aaronic priesthood has gone away. There, I mean this. Oh, yeah. just, I mean yeah. I mean it's just rich mm-hmm. with like. <laughs> there's no need for it anymore because right. we are the temple. The sacrifice has been made. There's just I mean how could you suddenly somewhere in the future say okay we're going to bring the tents, the. I mean I, I can see rebuilding the temple. I guess I don't know if I have it, but reinstituting the reinstituting the. Sacrificial system just seems like an abomination. Yeah, that, exactly. <laughs> that, that's how I, you know, that's how I would think of it. And then I hear some of these things coming up, being said, and I'm, they just don't, you know, right. something. There's something about it just doesn't seem to click in for me. Hmm. Um, this lead, I think this leads back to the discussion that we had at the very beginning, uh, kind of what all this, uh, at least where where I came in. And, you guys had already been meeting, but we were talking about the distinction between covenant theology. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think that what happens is if you have the, if you don't have Christ as the fulfillment of the law, and you have basically what the Jews have been called to, to, to do as a, as a people group for perpetuity, like you just look at what they're, you know, the, you look at the, Mosaic law, the 600, what is it, 623 laws that they're required to follow. And then they, so that, I think that that theology, when you start looking at it, you start going, okay, that, that the Christian church is not the fulfillment of that, uh, of, 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 those, of those laws. It's actually something almost different or new. That's, I think, when you start getting those those problems where people are like, okay, well, that's why you need the, the temple because God has actually said, you know, that this is how, you know, this is how you're to operate, you're to set yourself apart as a as a people, right? And so they don't see the def- they don't see Jesus as the the, the reason they the, they don't see those things as the roadsides pointing to Christ. They see those things as elements that are continuing and need to continue on to define. God's chosen people. Well, didn't didn't Christ tell the woman the, the time the time will come when you will worship God in spirit and in truth? Yeah. You know, you're not going to be temple in a, yeah. the temple is kind of, right. kind of irrelevant, really. I mean, in the in, in the sense, I mean, I, under, I understand things, but Jesus yeah. said that's that's going away. Hmm. Paul, yeah. Paul, talk, Paul talks about it. Romans four is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then is it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised, he received a sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteous that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Basically, I think the that that verse to me when I'm when I'm looking at that. It's talking about how the, the, the law is not what is saving him. His faith is what is saving him. Yeah. What's his faith in? Well, we talked about this a number of times. Faith is in God. His faith is in the coming of Christ. And so, therefore, 
having a redemption path, a redemption story, again, mm-hmm. like Paul, having a redemption story that's different, that doesn't have basically the merging of Jew and Gentile together, because then Paul goes and rails against, you know, people who are trying to get Gentiles to become circumcised. It's mm-hmm. like, no, that's not necessary. Yeah. Like, that's a complete, that's a completely unnecessary thing, right? Because right. That has to, it's, a, it's a moot point, because salvation has already come to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. And so you see that, and so... I think that there are plenty of signs in New Testament where you like, yeah, the fulfillment of this has already happened. Mm-hmm. So why would you need, why would you need an, why would you need an interpretation yeah, of that? I mean, a two-track a system kind of. Yeah, thing. the law is like a mirror. I mean, you, when you look in a mirror and you see something in your tooth, you don't take the mirror off and try to get it out. You know, it's just we <laughs> see it there, and then we there's something else that's going to happen. You know, Christ is the object Christ of our dance. faith. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, yeah. The temple Christ would be rebuilt, so the, if the Antichrist hadn't already come, the temple would be rebuilt because it would be an abomination, because the Antichrist is supposed to sit and make himself supposedly as God. Hmm. So you, what you're saying then, Charles, is that the temple would be rebuilt even though it would be an abomination of what God would want. It would be an, an act of rebellion by the Jews mm. to rebuild the temple. Mm. Is that right? Yes, because if, if they did, it would be... If it wasn't an act of abomination, it'd still be an act of abomination because Antichrist is going to make himself as God and sit mm. down in the temple. Yeah. So you're not a partial preterist then. That's a good. That's a good point, though. So let's, let's go back to what this whole story is about that he's talking. I mean, he's talking from Revelations twenty, and I probably am missing some of this. But when you read in nineteen, I mean, these are dramatic things that obviously haven't taken place. Right. And the beast was seized. Uh, this is verse twenty and nineteen. He goes through all as a false prophet. Um, he's killed. He's killed. Um, then I see an angel in the beginning of twenty, which he read, coming down from heaven, holding the keys of the abyss, a great chain. So Satan is bound for a thousand years. I don't see why we need to spiritualize that. It just it's it's saying. And, and it you're right saying there. what you're reading has obviously not happened. There's no way it's happened. That the beast has been that the beast has been uh, captured in the false prophet. And that's that's and and bound for a thousand years, um, with all of his demons and everything, and is bound. You mean the dragon? The dragon's been bound for a thousand years. Yeah, but I'm saying it isn't just the dragon. They're going to bind. I mean, if you just bound Satan, he's got he's got many minions that are going to cause just as much trouble. Um, yeah, in this world. So, so just give me that point. Okay. Just let me have those guys right. bound too. And you're going to find out what happens is, is that you have, you have Satan, you have the world, and you have man. And those are all three sources of sin that we have. So you bind Satan and you'll still find out that mankind ends up being wicked eventually. I mean, they, they, there is going to be a great influence of something missing in this world, which would be Satan, who's fairly clever <laughs> and and then you have all of these things taking place in 20 so all I'm saying is from whatever I understand about this if if somebody's trying to figure out how this has all happened already I'm just saying well good hope you can you may, I don't know how you do that but, but, well, if, but if, if he was making the case that the beast was Nero Right. Mm-hmm. So, so, and so the beast being captured mm-hmm. and, and, the and you're, and you're providing a strong argument against that, Frank, yeah. the, the, the argument against it is well, that I, well, I don't think, if I, the beast I, is Nero. No, I'm, but, but this is, 
this is separating, well, it seems to me like this is, I, I thought of this the other day when we were, after we left, but this, where is that? That's Revelation. Right before 20. 1917, 1819, and then 20 is what he was reading. 1920, it's, and the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who was in his presence had done the signs by which he deceived yeah. those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Those two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. And then the angel comes down and then binds the dragon. So he's bound the beast. So he's been bound already, huh? No, the beast and the false prophet were bound and thrown into the, to, right. to the right. lake of sulfur. Yeah. And then Satan, so when did that happen? <clears throat> I, I would maintain that that happened in 780. Yeah. Okay. But that part, that, that part took place already. So that's the, I think that's the, I mean, I, I definitely agree with the, um, the idea that we are, that the kingdom has begun, that we are, that, I mean, Jesus talks a lot about the, the, the now and not yet kind of thing, that, mm-hmm. that, that's, that we're living in the time of, of Christ reigning, um, but not completely. Um, but I have the same problem with, I don't see Satan being bound. I just don't see how you can say that Satan's been bound for the past thousand years, or for the if or if you take the eight millennium. I mean, that's where I struggle with the whole. Well, with Nero, I mean, he's out by now. So you would say that Satan is still reigning, or he, he has an influence. Okay, I mean, but he, but is he is not is bound? He, in is he the somewhere. prince? <laughs> is he the prince of the power of the air? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't. That that's what I'm struggling with. This whole sure. I mean, that's why I've always yes. struggled with this thing. Is that um, I, I not a problem? If, if Christ was reigning with the saints in full, and 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 Satan was bound in a pit somewhere, covered up, it sure doesn't seem like that to me. And that and that's you know that's just my experience. I don't put much weight in it. But that's where I struggle with is. Uh, one of, the, one of the interesting uh, parables that Jesus talks about is the plundering of the strong man's house. And he says that you first you bind the strong man and then you plunder his house. Yeah. And um, I've, I think it's a, you can make a pretty convincing case that the strong man is Satan because Jesus entered his world. He was the prince of the power right. of the air. Right. And Jesus bound him and plundered his house. Now, who was in the house of Satan that belonged to Jesus? It was his people. And so... It doesn't say anything about the, the those who are not the, that those who don't belong to Christ aren't still under the influence of Satan. They still have a father, and his their father is Satan. But Jesus says that he saw Satan fall like lightning; that he fell from his position. I would I would maintain that he fell from his position of of reign um, over the earth, and that the new king was instituted, and that new king is Jesus. And now, does that mean? that Satan has no influence? No, he definitely has influence. Um, but does he have influence over you, Thad? Or does he have influence over Connor or Charles or Les? No, he doesn't. Not, not from the standpoint of he, you know, we have to, you don't ever have to worry about your son being demon-possessed because Jesus will protect him from the Oh, yeah, I, I, I totally get that. That's not a, I'm just saying that, uh, I'm trying to find where it says, uh, Throwing him in the pit and covering up. What what verse is that? So, twenty. Revelation twenty. Twenty. Um, two. He sees the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations. 
until the thousand years are Anymore completed. until the thousand years. I mean, it no, doesn't no, this, say deceiving the saints. It says deceiving the nations. But, but, this, but this, Revelation 20, is, is um, uh, according at least to the, the way R.C. was describing this, that thousand years either doesn't exist if you're on-mill, right. it hasn't come if you're pre-mill, or if you're post-mill, you see the church leading up to this period where Satan is bound. Now, right, I understand that. That's just saying, but it seems to me like if you're Amiel, you're just dismissing this passage. I mean, where does, where does this play out if you're Amiel? I mean, where does it, we just pretend well, it's not there? Well, wouldn't it harken back to, you know, all the time R.C. spent about the dating of the book of Revelation? You know, when, did, when was Revelation written? I mean, that, that's kind of an important piece to settle on. Do you believe in an early, you know, 68 A.D. versus a 90 or 96 A.D. writing? Well, I don't think that affects this, though, does it? Well, I, but I'm, when I'm, I don't know. I, couldn't it, it I think it, I think it, it does, it? and I think part of the things that kind of tie into it, um, one, I think, can make a more logical leap to an Amil position if it, if you perceive the or understand the, if you understand the beast to be Nero. Because then there is a binding of something, right. and so you right. have a, you have a you have a start you have a start yeah. point right. with that. Um, That's good. Whereas, so if but if you don't have that as uh, um, if you don't have that as the focal point, then the dating becomes a lot more nebulous in terms of like okay, have these things happened or have they not? And then so that's where I think you can start kind of veering into these other directions of pre-mill or post-mill. But I do think that the on-mill position, I, I do think that it kind of requires the, the, I don't, it's not, it is a potential prerequisite mm -hmm. to understand that. One, one of the things that was, um, you know, when he's describing these different positions, uh, I've been post-millennial for by 10 years. And I certainly don't believe in a literal thousand year period from, you know, starting at this point and ending a thousand years later, I believe. So you could probably classify me as something of an all-mill, post-mill yeah. kind of combination. Because what I do believe is I do believe the church is bringing about heaven on earth. I believe that's the job of the church, and it always has been right. since Christ ascended and sat down on the right, by the right hand of God the Father, from which he shall judge until all of his enemies have been put under his feet. The last one to be put under his feet shall be death itself, and then the end will come. Yeah. So the, the church is working out the heavenization of the earth. So the church is not this, this little stranded outpost surrounded by enemy forces that's getting weaker and weaker and weaker. No, the gates of hell will not stop yeah. us. We will go out in victory, and we will pound down the gates of hell. And our job as, and I also believe as a post-millennial, that our job as Christians is to tell the good news. And what is the good news? But that there is a new king. And that king is king, whether you want to acknowledge him as king or not. He is the king of heaven, and he's the king of earth. Mm -hmm. And our job as Christians is to spread the news of the king. Mm -hmm. So as opposed to millennials, you would say we're living in the tribulation right now. No, I would say we're living in, the, in that thousand years where Satan has been bound, that Satan is bound from he's this. He's bound right now. He's bound right now from this, from this particular standpoint. Not that he can't still deceive, not that he can't still tempt and, and turn away. So in terms of deceiving the nations versus deceiving yeah. the church or deceiving certain people groups, he does not have the utter control 
and free reign that he did before Christ has come. His, his reign is, is now, or his reign or his lack of reign is very truncated. It's very, it's, it always has been, even in Job, he had to ask permission to do anything. But now it's even more limited in what he's able to do. Um, yeah, but you're really taking a lot of stuff for granted, our, our um, interpretation on that. I mean, so many things that have been prophesied in the Old Testament that have come true have been really quite literal, and I just don't see why they come up with a thousand years so that we can just kind of go, well, whatever that thousand is. I mean, yeah. we worked our buns off to get to 68, eight, um, you know, for right. Nero and all that, and now we take a thousand years and just go, well, whatever, you know, that's, that's and Satan's bound, mm. and, and, the, and, and I, I think if he's bound, uh, the reason he would be bound would be because it would make a tremendous difference in how the world operates. It wouldn't make mm -hmm. it sinless by any means. Mm -hmm. You still got all of us people that have a sin nature, even yeah. though sanctification is working, and you still have the whole world out here that mm -hmm. wants to have abortion, that wants to have various things yeah. like that. So I'm not throwing you under the bus and saying yeah. you're wrong. I'm just saying that you really do have to uh, come up with theories to make that work. I think you can make the case that the, that the number 1,000 is used throughout Scripture in, in a general sense, not to represent a, an exact number, but to, exact, to enact like a long time. So God is faithful to a thousand generations. He, is, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. That doesn't mean on hill number 1001, he doesn't own those cows. He, he owns it all. And so a thousand is a general term for a long time. So in that particular case, I would be, a, I suppose, an amillennialist from the standpoint of the literal thousand years. I don't think is necessary. Thousand is a, is a general term. It's a general number in scripture. Um, but but I understand why you would you would look for something literal there. I, I, well, I'd I look it. for literal because it says it <laughs> and literally, and then what else are you going to do with it? You have to start to then take the scriptures and just strip it away and say, oh, it's a thousand cattle on a thousand hills. Okay. But but that's hard to do. I mean, that's, that's hard to do in your theorizing how it goes. Go ahead, Les. No, no I was listening to you guys. This is really good. I... I think one of the one of the things we settle on is nobody's really dogmatic. I mean, you don't you don't just go you're all wrong and you know yeah, this, this sure. is right because there's a case to be made. Um, you know, was if Satan's bound or his are his angels bound with him? Is it, is it, does it say that as well? That it doesn't the, say the that. Entirety. It doesn't I, say that. I'm I'm just uh, you know if you guys can get rid of the thousand years, I'm saying all those <laughs> demons are bound too. Yeah. Well, you know, Joe, it, you know, Joe, Joe's point. Hey, hey, it's a deal. You negotiate on scripture, like. <laughs> okay, I'll give you the thousand years if you give me the temple. <laughs> but you know, you think about. I, I always think of like in Daniel chapter ten when, when when Daniel, when Daniel was finally visited by the. Yeah. the the angel, he I said, I was I was detained by the prince of Persia. Twenty-one days. Yeah, I mean, yes. that's what it took me. You know, uh, Michael was dispatched to subdue this guy so I could get to you. Yeah. So I mean, there's this there's this understanding that you know even even if Satan is bound, that there's other there's principalities mm -hmm. that are, are are that have overseers, I guess, demonic overseers. That's how I kind of understand this thing, how it works. It's very 
ge at least geographically organized. Mm. It seems like there are some. Oh, well, I think there might be uh, power structures too. Uh, yeah, mm -hmm. I mean there are hierarchies. I, I yeah, think sure. And, and God allows it. He mm. He allows it to happen that way. So, I guess my point is, is if Satan's bound, but these other cats are running around, we're still, <laughs> we're still, we're still right. battling. You know, they're still the ones deceiving. They're still the ones yeah. accusing the brethren. They're still the ones doing all. This. If you're going to have a conversation, Joe, that takes place between Satan and God, I mean, he has to only request things. He can't tell God what's going to right. happen. So it doesn't matter when. When he's in his Satan's in his full glory of power, he mm -hmm. still can only make requests because, right. at least, was with God. Right. But demon possession was an enormous part of Christ's ministry on earth, and. Um, demon possession is something that is, um, I'm not going to say it was unique only to the first century, for sure, but it's something that we don't see now. No, I think it's huge. Oh, we see uh, well, you, you, see, um, you see things that could be, you could construe as demon possession. Well, not, even in, not necessarily the U.S. only. Well, there. my point is, my point is, is that, the, um, that the world... Um, is being taken over by Christians. That's the point of the gospel. It's to be taken out and the earth will be covered with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is something that is a fact. It will happen. The gates of hell won't stop us, like I said before. And whether or not Satan has a lot of influence still, or he's got a little bit of influence, he is not reigning the way he was before Jesus came, before Jesus' advent. The light has shined on the people who were sitting in a great darkness. Who brought about that great darkness? Well, it was man's sin, and it was the, the reign of Christ. It was the reign of Satan. It was the fact that Satan was the prince of the power of the air. And I'm convinced, I know not everybody is, but I'm convinced he no longer has that position of power that he once did. And the apostles, the apostle John told us there was going to be many antichrists. So that, that tells me that it's, it, it's going to be, there's going to be a, um, not a legacy of, the, there's going to be antichrists present. Mm -hmm. they're, they're going to, they're going to have influence and, and um, they're always going to, they're always going to be until the, until the end, until that final mm -hmm. battle. So, you know, we're to, we're to be that vanguard. We're to be, you know, like you said, delivering the good news to the people. And, you know, I think our, our biggest response, one of our biggest responsibilities as Christians is to, is to war for truth, mm. you know, and against all the deception and all the lies that are out there. I don't, you know, I, for me, I, I'm not one of those people that, Lord, build a hedge of protection around them. I, I, I just don't think along. But what I think of is if I see... If I see a lie, I, I, I want to battle. I want to battle that lie, mm -hmm. uh, and with the truth. Mm -hmm. And you know, um, anyway. Yeah. No, and, and that is that's the type of victorious Christian mind mindedness we need to have. We need to just, if anything, regardless of how you want to interpret the millennium, we just need to move away from that idea of of the church being overwhelmed by the by the forces of, of evil until we're just, you know, being helicoptered out of Saigon and, and then it's all back to Satan kind of thing. Like Jesus came so he could deliver this world from the power of Satan. That's why he came. He came so that he could do that. And I believe he did it. Now, 
the practical ways that happen, that maybe that's more of the maybe that's more of the discussion where I'm a little bit less convicted on. But but I do believe that when he came, he delivered the world from under the power of Satan. Yeah. And I think if we look to his second coming for that, then we miss the major reason of his first coming. It was to deliver the world from the power of Satan. Mm -hmm. Um, I wonder. I wonder how much of this, um, is, the challenge, is that how much of this interpretation is based on confirmation bias from temperament perspective. <laughs> because I kind of think about it, and I, I, you know, whether you have a glass half full or glass half empty, kind of attitude towards things will change the way that you look out the window and what you what you see. Because I think from a practical standpoint, I look out there and I go, you know, maybe our time in the United States is not looking so great, but maybe in some other area, the church abroad is healthy and moving in a way that is optimistic. But I look at it and I go, you know, boy, there's a lot of prosperity doctrine going, you know, prosperity gospel being preached. There's a lot of seeker-sensitive stuff going on in churches. People are afraid to call, to use the word sin and Jesus in a, the same sermon for fear of, you know, losing people in their congregation. And I kind of look at that and I go, that doesn't look, that doesn't look and smell like victory to me. Yeah. But... You do hear testimony from other areas, other parts of the world that are actually more persecuted that you go, whoa, wait a second, in China, one of the fastest growing, you know, areas for Christianity, mm -hmm. you right. know, and you hear, and you, so you do hear these things. And so I don't know, like, I'm kind of a little bit on the fence where I kind of look and I, I feel a little, I mean, I'm not going to try and put words in Frank's mouth here, but I feel like Frank a little bit where I'm like, hey. Uh, Satan doesn't seem too bad. <laughs> like uh, the the what I'm what I'm looking at as far as the way things are way things are turning over here mm. doesn't doesn't instill a lot of confidence. And I feel more in that respect like a premillennialist in mm. that regard, yeah. where it's like mm, we're seeing a pretty pretty sharp decline here. Well, and there's not a it's not surprising that the 20th century brought out the premillennialists. I mean, we had world wars, we had yeah, we sure. had pandemics, we had stock market crashes, we had the immense suffering. And, oh, oh, yeah, actually. <laughs> but but yeah, yeah, but like suffer, suffering in the suffering in the physical sense, obviously, you know that that's the that we have a hope to have that eliminated as well. But I look at a lot of that as um, I look at a lot of. Uh, what's happened as far as, you know, principled positions and character positions. And, you know, I just think back to my time in college, you know, which was only, you know, which was 15 years ago. And I was talking to, you know, a friend of mine. Well, I mean, it, it was all, I said only 15 years ago for you old people here. It was only 15 years ago. You hear that, Ron? <laughs> I think back okay, then. Remember 15 years I, ago. I remember. Let me I get remember. my abacus so I can count. Yeah, I yeah. Hold on. Give me my you, you had a slide. No, but I, I think back to it, and we were having a conversation about about uh, the the uh, legalization of gay marriage, and there was a conversation being had where he had, my, my good friend in college, he was 
very left-leaning atheist. We were talking about it, and he was like, you know, advocating for civil union. And I was saying that, hey, I really see this as being an issue that has a, that has an element of a slippery slope. And of course, there's this complete denial of slippery slope. And then what do we have now? We have people who cannot figure out what they are. Mm-hmm. They have a complete I, gender identity thing going on. That's like what? What was this even? This yeah. wasn't even a question. And if I would have brought it up, if I would, and because I know I did bring this up, it was like oh, that. That can't happen. That's not going to happen. Right. And then you see this erosion, erosion, erosion. And that's, and that's what the war is. See, all these things are indoctrination. They are not natural. They right. are unnatural. You know, if every, if every human being on the planet married a person of their own sex, <laughs> I, would, I would think it would be pretty desolate here pretty quick. There would not be any... It's, it's, it's you know, not a favorable outcome. I, but, but you see the, the, this, how illogical. Yeah. I mean, there's yeah. no lot, not even logical, let alone when yeah. we start. Yes, it makes you the, stupid. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, I mean, I think that the, I think the, the, I can see it from. The point is, kind of going back to this, I can see it from the both both sides, where it's mm. like, you know, it. I I see uh, an optimism in advancing mm. the gospel. Yeah. There should always be an optimism in that because there is good news to be had in the fruit and the work of Christ. But I also see what's being talked about where it's like there is a clear erosion to the social fabrics and things that are very clearly taught in Scripture where we're getting a hard – we're getting a hard no from a lot of people. Absolutely. you know, there's there's a reason God didn't rapture us on a, on the point of salvation in our life. You know, He He left us here, and the you know the other thing when you think historically, the you know monasticism was not blessed by God. In other words, hunkering down behind three foot thick stone walls and not talking for twenty three and a half hours a day, and just you know eating nothing but a, a the shell of a nut once a day or whatever whatever they did. You know this form of asceticism and the, and the level of pietism and all that. God didn't bless that. There are all those places are tourist attractions now, you know, or they're or they're a winery or whatever they are. You know, God said no. You are to go out. You are to go out and and spread this good news, regardless of. You know, we're not going to anticipate the way it's going to be received. We're just supposed to be not successful but faithful. Mm-hmm. That that's all God wants. That's what God wants. That's what He requires of us. And uh, the church is the church is floundering right now. I believe, if, you know. I mean, yeah. I, I, I'm painting a broad in the brush. So-called Western world. Yes. yes. And that's mm. and that's where I can kind Everywhere of see where the Reformation took root in the 16th century is now a wasteland. Mm. Mm-hmm. Not absolutely, but in many ways. The church does not stand. You cannot watch somebody walking down the street and how they interact with people and see anything different between a Christian and a non-Christian. Mm-hmm. Preach it, brother. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm sorry? Right. Preach it. He says <laughs> preach it. We'll get your pulpit here in a moment. Keep going. Keep going, though. You're, you're good. I saw, I saw. So, 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 Ron, you, did you kind of see yourself in what R.C. was describing there and some of those eschatological views, or did you feel like you were kind of more of a... A nomad between between groups. 
articulated some of my beliefs, yes. Yeah. And they apparently parallel yours quite a bit. So oh, Joe, I oh. had no idea. <laughs> so Joe, you would say that the death and resurrection is what this is talking about here. The binding of Satan. Uh, what do you mean the death and resurrection? Christ's death and resurrection is when Satan was bound and covered up. And yeah, or his ascension, that, 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 that period of that time. Is yes. what the, yeah. This is just another way of talking about what Christ Christ's work. Correct, or you could even, maybe maybe you can make the case that it was at the, at the destruction of Jerusalem. You know, but within that, within that generation that, that took place. So you would say that with the destruction of Jerusalem, something ex- extra happened beyond the resurrection as far as conquering over Satan. Well, I'm, I believe that those, all those four pale, those four horsemen came at, in 70 AD, that, they, that that was Christ returning in judgment, that that was, that, that most of what you read in Revelation about that judgment happened in 70 AD. And so the binding of the beast, if, if that was Nero, then that happened in 70 AD, that didn't happen Exactly. I mean, we're trying to we're trying to put things directly onto like the date and time kind of thing. Yeah. Um, Connor, how would, how could they bind Nero if he murdered himself, or how could Nero get bound if he was, he murdered himself? Right. Uh, well, Revelation being Revelation's either all literal, it's all symbolic, or it's a mixture of the two. I find Revelation to be some some parts literal, some parts are symbolic, and so the binding of Nero or the binding of the beast. Would be would be seen as where is Nero right now? Yes, he killed himself, but he is in hell, right? He is in the lake of fire. He is in the lake of fire. He has been bound never to return again, never to wreak havoc on the church again. So that would be the, the binding I would see. I thought when you die, you don't go to hell until after the judgment. After the judgment, oh. then you go to hell. According to this, you're well, dead. he's just going into the bottomless pit if he's there because he's going to end up in the lake of fire. Which no, it says the two of them are thrown into the fiery lake and burning sulfur. But, and then we'll be released and then finally we'll be cast. No. The, well, yeah. Later, maybe, later on. Right, in, right, right. In, right. In, in, in was that a place created for Satan? Right. And, and his angels. Yes. Um, so, you know, that's where Nero went. I mean, the wages of sin is death. And there, Nero, Nero died and he died death to not be come mm-hmm. back from. Yeah, it said that the two of them were thrown like fire and the rest were killed with the sword. I mean, so that's a different, sounds like a different thing happened to everyone else, all, all the other hmm. kind of his minions or whatever, I guess. Or. So um, as we close up, mm-hmm. for Elisa's benefit and to support Andrews, because I think Andrew has a good point about the drifting away, and this is something in Hebrews they talk about. So, mm-hmm. and then if you want, Joe, I'll close up with prayers so that we can get over to Dairy Queen <laughs> before you before you too late. Well, I just wanted to get Anna. You know. uh, for this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift mm-hmm. away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great salvation? So many, many, many things in there. But I think, I think, uh, gradualism and drifting is a great tool of um, the enemy wherever he's at mm-hmm. right now. Yep. And 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 we do, it, it does cast a. 
kind of a, mm-hmm. sometimes a discouragement mm-hmm. on things. Right. Churches always drift one direction only. <laughs> yeah. Always drift yeah. away yeah. from That's Jesus. That's why there's always a remnant and except. Yeah. But yeah. anyways. I, 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 I heard a guy say one of the most dangerous things in the world is to preach a half a truth. Mm-hmm. You know, and we see that out there. I mean, you look at you look at some of these huge churches and listen to a guy like Andy Stanley. I'm going to tell you what, you better listen to him with discernment. You better listen to him with the Bible open because you're going to run into all kinds of stuff. Dear Lord, um, thank you for this day. Thank you that we got to meet together and talk about the Bible and what R.C. Sproul has been saying. Um, please help us to understand what we what has was being said and not be divided thank you for letting us meet amen amen Amen. thanks brother